walking us through verses 3 through 10 in chapter 6, which is really Paul once again confronting the false teachers on their false doctrine and even encouraging the church and correcting the church, helping them to be content really in what God has provided for them. And then now Paul turns directly to Timothy to begin these final addresses. So we will only cover verses 11 through 16 tonight. So chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 11 through 16. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are our Lord and our God. Lord, we earnestly seek you. Our souls thirst for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Lord, as we come to your word tonight and look upon you in your sanctuary, we ask, Lord, as we see your glory, would you feed us with your truth? Father, sustain our faith and show us your glory, Lord, so that we might long even more for our Savior's return and rejoice in the hope of glory that awaits all those who are found in him. Help us, Lord, to see and rejoice in your steadfast love, knowing that it is better than life. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine something for a second. Imagine I came to you weak, weary, in desperate need of encouragement because the people that I love the most, friends, family, fellow church members, began to walk away from the Lord. And then to make matters even worse, when I went to them and confronted them and called them out on their sin, they turned and started to slander me and spread lies about me and, and what I said, even turning others against me, causing other people to stray from God's word and even to fall into sin. If I came to you and presented that situation to you, how would you encourage me? How would you encourage any brother or sister in that situation? What would you say? What would you say to give them hope and to help them walk faithfully 
with their God. I hope none of us would be Job's counselors in moments like that. I know you. It's probably your fault. So what did you do to deserve this? Just curse God and die. Hopefully no one goes there. Hopefully no one goes the way of the world as well, which is basically, well, you have to fight fire with fire. Right? They hit you, you have to hit back, but even harder. Yeah, God won't like it, but they deserve it. Right? We don't want to do that either. I think some of us in this situation might kind of take the more religious works-based approach. Say, well, this is a tough situation, but you can get yourself out of it if you just try harder. You just do more. Trust God more. Be more. Whatever it might be, you just have to do more of it, and then that will eventually help the situation resolve. Some people might do the opposite and say, you just need to get out. (laughs) Right? This sounds like a terrible situation. Just cut ties and run. Walk away. God is just, so he'll sort it all out in the end, and you just need to get out of there. I'm sure there's a number of different things that people would say, and some of those things are good in a certain context, in certain situations. But what is really interesting to me is that in Timothy's, in this book here, Timothy is in this exact same situation. False teachers have twisted the truth. They're leading people astray. They are slandering Timothy and the other elders of the church, telling lies about them, and they're ignoring God's word altogether leading more people even into sin. And Paul comes to Timothy in this letter, and he doesn't tell him anything glorious or new or groundbreaking. He just basically says, keep going. It's more than that, but keep going. Hang in there. Persevere. Keep going and do all the things that I've taught you in this letter and also in the book of Ephesians. Because Paul keeps repeating that as well. That's what Paul does here. That's it. And then, by the way, God is sovereign. It's kind of an interesting situation there, right? Interesting advice. Not new, not groundbreaking. It's not something that Timothy's never heard before. But Paul basically tells Timothy, especially at the end of this book, look, you need to be a man of God because God is sovereign. Now, it may not sound like much to us, and I bet if some of you offered that advice to other people, or if you were offered that advice, that would probably be frustrating in some moments. Can't you give me more? Can't you help me out here? Can't you give me something groundbreaking or new that I can really, you know, do? Brothers and sisters, this is the encouragement we all desperately need over and over and over again. Be men and women of God. Be who you are in Christ because God is sovereign. I hope you notice there's two parts to that statement. There's a command, there's an exhortation, be a man of God. And there's also a reason or a ground for that command. So those are going to be our two points tonight. First is what we should do. The command, the exhortation, which is be a man of God. And then why should we do it, which is the reason behind that. And that is because God is sovereign. So that's where we're going tonight. So let's focus first on the exhortation, which is to be a man of God, starting in verse 11. So let's read verse 11 again. And Paul says, but as for you, you being Timothy, O man of God. Now, I know when we read that, we probably don't think much of it because we use this word pretty lightly. We call all kinds of people men of God. We use that title pretty flippantly. I've heard people even use it of people that pursue other gods. They're men of their God and their religion. But the Bible doesn't use this title lightly at all. 
In fact, a man of God is only used a couple times in the Old Testament. And it's used for people like Moses and Samuel and David and a few of the prophets. And believe it or not, out of all that Paul writes, this title only appears twice. All that he wrote. So here in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, that glorious passage when he says that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the only time it appears. This is a very important title for Paul that carries a lot of weight. And you need to know here, Timothy didn't earn this title. Okay, he didn't suddenly become a man of God, and so now we can say, okay, he's a man of God. No, Timothy is a sinner, just like us, just like Paul, just like all those saints in the Old Testament. But like David and Moses and these men from the Old Testament, Timothy is given this title with his calling. He's been called to be a pastor, to lead God's people, and therefore he's been called to be a man of God. And the man of God cannot be a man of the world, cannot be a man of greed or division or falsehood, which is what those false teachers were just described as, right? In verses 3 through 10, they were men of the world. But Timothy is called out of that. The man of God stands with God. The man of God speaks on behalf of God to his people and feeds the sheep. And the man of God doesn't just speak God's word. The man of God obeys, obeys God's word. Even when the rest of the world is walking away from God, the man of God stands firm to stand with God and honor him in their life. Now, I hope nobody's thinking, wow, that sounds like a lot, so I'm glad I'm not a pastor Right? I'm not a pastor. I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about this. No. You guys know enough by now. We've gone through 1 Timothy long enough to know that even though Timothy is called to these things, the church is often called to follow Timothy, the man of God. And really, Timothy is following Christ, the true man of God. So there's a way that all of us, even though Timothy is called to lead the way in this, all of us are called to be men and women of God. Now, what does that actually look like? Well, Paul breaks that down into kind of three pretty quick commands here. And they're all starting with F. So flee, fight, and follow. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front, I stole those from R. Kent Hughes. I had two of the Fs, but he gave me the last one, and I thought it was glorious. So flee, fight, and follow. So the man of God flees. Look at verse 11 again. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? Well, it could be anything he said in the book, but I think specifically here, it's all those things he just talked about that the false teachers were known for. Flee the love of money. Flee worldliness, verses 9 and 10. Flee from coveting. Flee from discontentment, verses 6 through 8. Flee conceit. Flee slander. Flee unhealthy controversy and division in the church, verses 4 through 5. So basically Paul's saying, look, the man of God cannot be like those false teachers. And this is an important distinction I want to make here. See, it's not just about not believing their doctrine or not teaching their false doctrine. The man of God also recognizes there's bad practices, bad ethics that come from that false doctrine. In fact, I think a lot of times the false doctrine is set up to support their bad practice. They use the word of God, they twist the word of God so they can go and live however they want. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, they live godless lives. 
lawless lives. They have no respect for God, and they use God's word to justify their sin. That can never, never be the case for the man of God. So when you see that, Timothy, run, run, flee, run like Joseph, right, from Potiphar's wife and from adultery in Genesis 39. Now, a lot of us hear that word flee and run, and we think, well, come on, isn't that a bit cowardly? A retreat, soldiers don't retreat, they hang in there. Is it cowardly to run? It wasn't cowardly for Joseph to run from adultery. It's not a cowardly act that God is calling us here when he says to flee that ungodliness. It's actually wise and courageous. Joseph ran from sin, even though he suffered terrible consequences. It would have been far better in his life if he stayed in many ways. But he suffered years in prison because he knew that Potiphar wasn't his true master. He wanted to honor his true master, which is his heavenly father. And that wasn't a cowardly act at all. That was courageous. I would imagine there's some in here that a need to stop being a coward. The need to flee from sin. You know, I think we can often assume that sin is something that we can kind of master ourselves. Almost domesticate it like a pet. A pet dog on a leash. That's what we kind of assume our sin is when it's really a wolf seeking to devour us. Now believe it or not, kids, you actually do this as well. You do this a lot of times with the whole comparison game and pointing fingers, right? And you say, well, my sin is really not that bad. And you might never say that, but you would say, oh, my brother always lies. The word always is used a lot. Always doesn't listen. He always doesn't do what he's supposed to, but I I do it all the time. We say these things. And what we're saying in moments like that is I don't need to repent. My sin's not as bad as their sin. Adults, we do this too, don't we? We can do it without even pointing fingers. We can actually do it with kind of prideful, foolish confidence. I think we do it when we say, well, my greed, my anger, my lust, it's really not that bad. In fact, you know what? I think I kind of have it under control. I can stop anytime I want. And you know what? I will stop once I see it really affects my life or other people's life. But right now, I don't want to live without it. I don't want to let it go because I think I really, really need it. So I'm going to kind of half-heartedly repent. That's cowardice. That's believing that, you know what, I'm not going to flee from sin because it's going to cost me too much. We are called to this as men and women of God to run, to flee. This is one of the first characteristics of a man or a woman of God. But we can't just flee from something and flee to nothing, right? You can't just fill something with nothing. The Bible talks a lot about this kind of put off and put on, and this passage is no different. We need to flee somewhere, and look at what verse 11 says we flee to. So it says, flee these things, and it doesn't stop with the period. It says, and pursue. By the way, that's another word for flee, isn't it? Flee, run, pursue, seek after these things. Seek after what? righteousness righteousness this remember this is the context of those false teachers he's saying don't be like them in other words be righteous have integrity treat people justly fairly timothy don't lie and steal and use your job just to get money as those false teachers were doing don't be like them you need to be righteous and then paul goes from the horizontal to the vertical he says godliness 
which again, like I said, it's righteousness in the vertical sense. Seek God. Seek him alone. He is your true master. So obey his word. Live out the calling that you've been called to. And if you've been paying attention in 1 Timothy, Paul mentions godliness a lot, doesn't he? It's one of the biggest themes in this whole book. Eight times Paul talks about godliness in only six chapters. So, of course, the man of God must be godly. And then thirdly, you need faith. Pursue faith. Now, this is not objective faith. Doctrine and the good deposit, like Chad mentioned this morning, we'll get to that in a few verses. This is the subjective faith. Grow in your faith. Maybe you can even substitute faithfulness there. Don't just settle, Timothy, for where you are. Use the means of grace to commune with your God, to grow in grace, to walk with God, to pursue God himself. And not just to be righteous, but to know the righteous one. He says you also need to pursue love. Again, going from the vertical right to the horizontal. Let your love and faith in God, let your love for him overflow into the people around you. If you love God, then certainly you will love those made in his image. And you know what? You need to love them by sacrificing for them, serving them. Don't be like those false teachers who just love to get. You love the way God loves. You don't expect anything really in return. That's what Timothy is called to, what we are all called to as men and women of God. And then he wraps it up with probably the two hardest in this list, steadfastness and gentleness. I love what John Stott says about this. He says, steadfastness is patience and endurance in difficult situations. That's hard enough, isn't it? When times are terrible, to have patience and endurance. And then he says, and gentleness is patience and endurance with difficult people. People that don't seem to want to listen, that really want to make your life miserable in some ways. You patiently, gently endure them. This means the man of God doesn't just speak the truth. They're not out there just to correct every false doctrine and let it fly and just kind of let everybody else deal with all the damage. The man of God is called to speak the truth in love, building others up, giving grace to all those who hear. That's what Paul told Timothy in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Timothy, that's what I'm talking about here. Speaking the truth in love, that's what this gentleness is. I hope you can see this is the picture of the man of God. And I hope no one is looking at this going, wow, I didn't know that was on the list. This shouldn't be a surprise to us because this sounds like another list from Paul, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a lot of similarity there. They're not exactly the same, but there's a ton of overlap because this is, again, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not Timothy or us that is going to produce this kind of character within ourselves by the work of our own hands. No, it's God's gracious work of sanctification in us. God is the one who brings these characteristics out in us by his grace through his spirit. So we trust the Lord. We do work, by the way, too. It doesn't mean we just kind of ride along or that God is just kind of, you know, the the ultimate surgeon that just puts us to sleep and then changes us while we're asleep. No, we are called to work out our salvation, aren't we? With fear and trembling, 
called to fight in a minute and to flee these things. Why? Because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's saying, Timothy, pursue these things. And remember, God is the one that will produce the fruit in the end. But fleeing and pursuing isn't the only thing the man of God is called to. Secondly, the man of God is called to fight, to fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Notice the the there. That's really important, that article. We're not talking about subjective or general faith any longer. It's not Paul saying, well, Timothy, just don't stop believing, right? Hold on to that feeling if you get the song in your head. Yeah, he's not saying that. It's not general faith. Just keep on believing. No, this is objective faith. This is the faith, sound doctrine. In the epistles, Paul calls this the truth, the good deposit, the teaching. It's what Chad talked about earlier as we're defending the faith. And just like Paul started this letter, in chapter 1, verse 18, we read this earlier today when he says, wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. Now he wraps up the letter by saying, fight, fight the good fight of faith. Everything in between, Timothy, is all about this holding up this doctrine. And don't ignore this word for fight. I don't think we often see the Christian life like this. This word is where we get the word agony from, agonize. The picture we should be thinking about is the boxer going to the very last rounds with every ounce of energy they have to fight their opponent. Or the soldier who is doing everything necessary to fight back and push back the enemies to defend his home and his family and everything else. This is what the Christian life is, brothers and sisters. It's continual, irreconcilable war. I didn't make those words up. Those are in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13. Those are what describe sanctification, continual, irreconcilable war. And we have three enemies that fight against us on a daily basis, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world seeks to choke out God's word, as we see in the parable of the sower. It seeks to, to put us into the mold of the world, to conform us to its image, as we see in Romans chapter 12. And our flesh is constantly twisting the truth, trying to deceive us and tell us our sin really isn't that bad, at least not as bad as them. So you don't need to cut off your hand. You don't need to pluck it out. You're fine just the way you are. And the devil uses both the world and the flesh, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, whispering the same lies that he whispered in the garden, right? God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's not going to give you what you truly need. You need to get it for yourself. Those are our enemies. Brothers and sisters, do you see the Christian life as warfare? When you get up in the morning, are you consciously thinking, I am waging war today with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or are you sticking your head in the sand? Acting like we're at peace with the world. Like there's not really going to be a fight for my soul today. You know, I hear a lot of people say things like, I don't want to preach the gospel as much, or I, I hesitate to preach the gospel, or even I hesitate to stand up for what's right, because I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to take our family gathering like we just had at Thanksgiving or Christmas and, and ruin it by talking about Jesus. 
I mean, how dare you do that? Talk about Jesus at Christmas, right? That sounds ridiculous. But see, I don't know, I don't know what your family's like, what your non-believing friends are like, but the unbelievers in my life have no hesitation preaching to me. No hesitation preaching to me about the glories of their sin, calling me to actually follow them into sin. Why should we be the ones as Christians to act like there's no fight, to act like there's no war, to meet those lies with silence? Well, brothers and sisters, we are in a fight. We are called to fight those lies with truth with the good deposit, with sound doctrine, to preach God's word, fight the good fight of the faith, no matter the consequences. Even Jesus said he came to bring a sword, to divide families, and we can't expect anything less than what our Lord said he would do. So the man of God is to flee and to fight, but thirdly, to follow, follow Christ. This is what it means to hold, take hold of eternal life, persevere in faith. So we see that in verse 12. Again, right in the middle of verse 12. Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, it's a bit difficult to see exactly what Paul is referring to when he talks about Timothy's calling and his confession. Some of the commentators and and scholars say, well, he's probably talking about his baptism or other ones say about his ordination. Because both of them have many witnesses. Both of them involve vows and confessions and looking beyond those things to point all the way to Christ. But even though we don't know probably exactly what this is, is it his baptism or is it his ordination, his confession there? I'm not quite sure, but we still know the message here. We still know what what Paul was getting at. He's saying, Timothy, you've been called. You've been called from death to life. You've been called into ministry, and the whole church saw you follow the Lord, make the good confession, clinging to these promises. And so Paul's message now is, keep going. You started down this track. You've been called. You've made the good confession. So keep going. Persevere to the end, even even when the whole world's against you, because that's what your Lord did. He made the good confession as well. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. There it is. Christ made the good confession. He trusted in the same promises that Timothy's been given. He persevered in faith and fought to the end which was death on a cross testifying before Pontius Pilate. So he's saying, Timothy, follow your Lord. And when you do that, verse 14, this is what it'll look like. To keep the commandment. Again, that's the faith, the doctrine, the sound doctrine of the church. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying there, Timothy, here's your orders. These are what you're called to obey without fault or failure. You're called to obey your commanding officer which is Christ Jesus our Lord, who made the good confession and led the way in this. You're called to follow him to death. So cling to him. Have faith in him because he is the only hope because he alone can give you eternal life. After all, it was Christ our Lord who told us what eternal life is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
In John 17, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul's showing us here what it takes to be a man of God. So I ask you, church, does this describe you? Is your life characterized by fleeing sin, by fighting for truth, fighting against lies, and by following Christ no matter what the consequences are? I think most of us could see this list and think, well, yeah, regularly I do those things, but if I want to be honest, I still need to add one more F to this list, which is failure. Because there are times where we live, if we're honest, even though we've trusted in Christ and are walking in his ways, there are days when we live as men and women of the world and not men and women of God. Where we don't flee like we should. We don't fight for truth like we should. And we don't follow Christ like we should. So what should we do in moments like that when we feel like giving up? What's the motivation to keep going? What's the reason to do these things once again even after failure? Well, that's what Paul gives us next. The reason here is because God is sovereign. And first of all, he says God is sovereign over all creation. Look at verse 13 again with me. Verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. You realize what that says about God? God is the giver of life. And that's good news, brothers and sisters, for two reasons. He is the giver of physical life. He's the one who created all things. He breathed life into us, and he sustains our every breath. So if we fight the good fight of faith to the grave, even to martyrdom, worst case scenario, the giver of life can give us life again. He can raise us from the dead. He is sovereign even over death itself. That's gloriously good news. And it's not just physical life that God gives. Spiritual life as well. Apart from the sovereign grace of God, none of us, including Timothy, would never make the good confession. None of us would ever trust the Lord. None of us would flee sin and fight the lies and follow Christ if God didn't sovereignly awake us from our spiritual death. And the good news is that the God who has awakened us is also the one who began this good work in us and will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. So brothers and sisters, we know the God who gave us spiritual life will keep us. He is sovereign enough to do that, to provide everything we need, to empower us to be men and women of God. But God's not just sovereign over creation he's also sovereign over salvation and that's what we see here especially in Christ look at verse 13 again right in the middle of verse 13 of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession do you remember what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate do you remember the confession that he made this was right before the cross, right when Jesus was being examined by Pilate and Jesus was going to go to the cross and, and he was being falsely accused. Pilate asked him a number of questions, but he asked him this in John 18, He said, are you king? Are you the sovereign of the Jews? And Jesus said, basically, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
That's the testimony. That's the good confession. Jesus basically said, yes, I am the Lord. I am the sovereign. I am the king of the universe. I am the Messiah. I rule over a kingdom that's even greater than yours, Pilate. A kingdom that is beyond this world. And I have come to take back this world. To restore what was broken and what was lost at the fall. And Christ does this by fleeing from sin. Where we failed to flee. He does this by fighting the good fight of the faith. Fighting against the lies that we tell ourselves and the lies in this world with the truth, the good deposit. And Christ was the one to persevere to the end, even when that end was the death on the cross. And when he rose from the grave, he conquered those three enemies, Satan, sin, and death for good. So all those who cling to Christ by faith, follow him to the end, will be kept by our Lord and they will be glorified in the end. Because God gives us his Holy Spirit, conforming us to the image of his Son. In other words, making us men and women of God. The God who saves us is the God who is sanctifying us and will keep us to the end. You see, Timothy's hope and our hope is not what we can obtain, not what we can do with our hands. It's not that we can make ourselves, will ourselves to be men and women of God. It's the sovereign God of creation and salvation that gives us eternal life. That he empowers the fight and empowers the fleeing to honor him forever. Empowers it so that verse 14 says, we can keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord. And just in case you have any doubt, if God could really do this, is he really truly this sovereign to save me and sanctify me to the end? Paul gives us these last two verses, which are a glorious description of God's sovereign power. Look at verse 15. Look at the middle of verse 15 here. He, that's Christ, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, there is no one more sovereign than Christ. No higher king, no higher court of appeal. He alone can do all his holy will. Verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I love these verses because it's almost like Paul just went right into a praise song. It's, it's amazing because Paul is there encouraging Timothy. He's trying to help this brother who is weary and in desperate need of encouragement. And Paul ends up encouraging himself. He goes into this hymn or this early creed and he tells us, look, our Lord is invincible. Our Lord is immortal. There's no earthly power that could ever touch him. No false teacher, Timothy, those false teachers you fight that look so powerful, they can't rob God of an ounce of his glory. They can't touch him. Not even death or decay will touch our God. Because God also is invisible and unapproachable. He's so glorious we can't even be in his presence. And the only way we know anything about God is if he reveals himself to us. And he has. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Christ we see 
God's sovereignty on display, don't we? In the works of creation, throughout all of history, we see it in salvation, and we see it now even as he's ruling and reigning from on high. He is our sovereign king, and our king is coming back to finish what he started. He will set all things right. This is a beautiful picture of the way that Paul ends this. He gives Timothy this impossible command, be a man of God. Do the impossible, Timothy. But remember, God is a God that is sovereign. He can get the impossible done. He will make it happen. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, trust in our sovereign Lord. Repent of your sins. Cling to Christ Jesus our Lord so that we can flee from sin. Fight the lies with truth and follow Christ by walking in his ways because our Lord is sovereign and he will do it in us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in this passage. Thank you for the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who is doing the work of sanctification in all of us right now. Pray, Lord, that you would keep these promises that you would empower us to fight sin, to flee ungodliness, and to follow you forever. And if there are any weary brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord, show us your glory, your sovereign glory, so that we continue to cling to you and not to this world. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.